Brothers and sisters, the reading of the word this morning before the message is from Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1, excuse me, verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to, be, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God, for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, as we come to uh, this significant passage in your word. We pray that you would grant us such a measure of your spirit that we would be able to uh, understand it, understand it rightly, uh, receive it uh, humbly, uh, to have it um, work through uh, the way we think and understand things so that our thoughts, hearts, desires become more conformed to your will and toward the image of Christ. And we would pray, Father, Uh, that through uh, the instruction of your word, we might, as believers, have hope. Uh, Hope that is fixed upon Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by just uh, mentioning uh, the title. Uh, We're still considering the triumph of God at Mount Carmel and the defeat of Baal. But notice the subtitle. 
The subtitle is this, The Gospel Begins as a Critique Against Paganism. I, I want us to appreciate that. Um, as we come to the end of this passage in 1 Kings, the story of, of, of the defeat of Baal at Mount Carmel, uh, last week, we looked at the climax, which was really given to us in verse 39, that when when the fire came down and consumed the meat upon the altar and consumed the wood and consumed the stones and then licked up all of the water in the trenches and even licked up the dust, uh, we read in verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell down on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So, that was clearly the climax. But then the final event and the resolution of the showdown would be verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now next week we're going to look at verse 40. We're going to wrap up this significant conclusion to what God is doing with Ahab and with Israel at the end of this three-year drought. But before we do so, I want us to listen to what modern and pretty much on the side of conservative Bible commentators have to say about what Elijah does with the 450 prophets of Baal. So, four commentators that came across uh, my desk as I was reading, and actually it came across Lagos, to be honest. It doesn't come across my desk unless it comes across Lagos, Lagos Bible Software. So it was in, so a number of commentators, this is what I read, this is what sort of surprised me. So here's one of them. Uh, so he's speaking about the writer of First Kings and the one who writes the narrative, and he says, the writer relates the massacre without comment here. But Elijah is later rebuked for a train of thought that amounted to fanaticism, and his all-out slaughter of the prophets of Baal should perhaps be seen as an outcome of his fanatical tendency. Then you have another commentator who says this, God's servants do not always respond as God planned, but he works with them in any case amidst the superstitions and hatreds of the time. So, I, what, what is he saying? Well, Elijah killed these 450 prophets because of his superstitions and his hatreds. Third commentator. There's a section title that goes like this. Quote, no mercy for the losers. And then quoting this commentator. The fire from heaven convinces the people that Yahweh is Israel's true God. It is sad, however, that the victory had to be sealed with the slaughter of the prophets of Baal, thus enabling a biblical precedent for the burning of heretics, particularly in the 16th century. And then the fourth. This writer says, quote, I wish Elijah hadn't killed all those other prophets. Maybe God feels the same. The story doesn't say that God told Elijah to do so, nor does it directly express an opinion on his doing so. Now, I hope you're having something of the same kind of reaction that I had when I read these four different commentators on this particular passage. But 
I want to point out two things. First, this is a very modern perspective that these scholars exhibit. The modern perspective is this, namely, that the killing of other human beings is never the best solution to any set of circumstances, which is to say, nothing ever justifies human beings ever killing other human beings. Okay? And then secondly, there is a certain point of view that runs through these commentators that the laws in the Old Testament against paganism, which these Old Testament scholars are perfectly aware of, are certainly not a true moral perspective. That the moral thinking that is foundational to the Old Testament laws that Elijah follows are in fact morally inferior to what we know and to what we understand from the New Testament. In essence, Elijah should have done better. This is why they wish Elijah had not killed the 450 prophets. This is why they're also willing to claim that God didn't actually sanction what Elijah did. Uh, this is why they think Elijah acted fanatically. And this is why they think this kind of episode uh, aided and abetted those in the 16th centuries who hunted down heretics and burned them at the stake. Now, even though these men are classified as belonging to the world of evangelical scholarship, their views, their concerns, belong more to those who have historically attacked the Bible than to those who have confessed the Bible, Old and New Testament, to be the very word of God. This is something to note, and it's something of great concern. Nevertheless, the question is this. Can Elijah's actions be morally and spiritually defended? Was it really God's will that Elijah carried out when he did this judicial execution of 450 prophets of Baal? It's a huge question. It's the paramount issue that we have to address when we speak specifically on verse 40. But since these scholars think, that is, many of them claim, they seem to be claiming to be evangelical Bible-believing Christians, and since many evangelical Bible-believing Christians are also concerned about what Elijah did here, we really need to have the New Testament's point of view. We need to understand, how does the New Testament address this matter of paganism? Well, the New Testament does. Because the main worldview that the apostles encountered in the Roman Empire and everywhere else beyond was paganism. And so that's why we are here in Romans chapter 1. This is a foundational New Testament passage that declares God's truth about the nature and the dangers of paganism. So let me begin by stating the conclusion. The New Testament, just like the Old Testament, counts pagan idolatry as the greatest of all crimes against God. And it does so for three key reasons. Because it promotes a counterfeit worship, and because it leads to a moral breakdown of everything that is holy and good, and because it also attacks the fabric of humanity 
by its attack upon family and marriage. Now, within this passage, we can directly see the first two of these points. With a little digging, we can see the third as well, especially when we couple to the third point, what we find in the Old Testament. So the main question is this. Why is idolatry a capital crime? And to answer the question again, these three reasons. First, the worship of the pagan gods exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Secondly, the worship of pagan gods inevitably leads to immoral practices. And then thirdly, the worship of pagan gods destroys the integrity of the family. So I want to begin with this this first point about the worship of pagan gods counterfeiting and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Now here the the focus is what we see in verse 25, where we read Paul writing, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Now, Paul begins to lay out the message of the gospel. That's the main topic of the book of Romans through the first uh, 11 chapters. It's all about the doctrinal statement of what the gospel happens to be. His starting point is God's response to the human race, which has suppressed the true knowledge of the true God. And his reaction to all of that is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And suppressing the true knowledge of the true God, the human race then exchanges the truth about God for the worship of the creature. Now, that's the way it's translated in the English Standard Version, the creature. But this particular word uh, means created thing, as well as it can mean the whole creation, the whole creation itself. So what we have here is the worship of the creation the creatures within the creation, all the created things, all of it treating creation in its individual parts to all of its parts as divine. That's the essence of pagan worship and pagan practices. This is the lie that replaces the truth. This is the counterfeit worship. Now, here's where we need to have the greatest kind of clarity. Pagan thought rejects the creator-creation distinction. Paganism makes the creator and the creation one and the same. The lie of paganism is that the creation or the cosmos or the universe itself is that which is of ultimate. All that is, all that ever was, all that ever will be is Nature, the cosmos itself, the universe. And because this whole thing is divine, the technical word for this understanding of reality is pantheism. God is all and all is God. So, for paganism, there's no creator outside of the cosmos. There is no, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Rather, in some manner, the cosmos has always existed And this cosmos itself is to be worshipped. And all of the forces of nature are worshipped as gods. And the gods are worshipped through man-made idols that represent the gods of nature. But they themselves also become the objects of worship. 
And so Paul says in verse 23 about human beings who exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now Paul's teaching here has the same focus as the first and second laws of the Ten Commandments. Remember the first law, the first commandment says this, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second one says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, note in light of this of what Paul says in verse 21. For Paul says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So this echoes the same idea of dishonor to God, of robbing God of his glory, that we find in the first and second two commandments. Breaking the first and second commandment always is a dishonor to God. It's always robbing God of his glory. It's always robbing him of the worship that he alone deserves. So paganism dishonors God. Paganism robs God of his glory. Paganism robs God of the thankfulness that we owe to him. But perhaps even more significant is the verse 25, the statement that Paul mentions in verse 25, that pagan worship is a great exchange. It replaces the truth about God with a lie. Who God really is replaced by what God isn't. This is the great counterfeit of paganism, a replacement religion, a rejection of the true knowledge of the true God. Now, we need to understand that this is going to have a profound effect upon human beings because we are made in the image of God. And because we are made in the image of God, we will become like what we worship. So we call attention to Psalm 115, which we read, verse 8, where the writer says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Our view of human beings will conform to what we worship, what we view as God. If we think of nature as God, we will ultimately demote human beings to the status of simply being something of nature. But even if we say that every human being is divine, we are no more divine than a rock or a tree or that white stuff that pigeons leave on city buildings. We will not see human beings as Psalm 8 describes us in verses 5 and 6. Yet, as David wrote, speaking to God, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So, exchanging the truth of God for a lie has very serious consequences. Now, we'll look at those. Two further consequences that Paul gives us in this passage. So the second big truth that we find here is this. The worship of pagan gods, pagan worship, inevitably, inevitably leads to immoral practices. This is the flow of Paul's thought. 
And he describes it in two parts. So part one would be verses 26 and 27 of Romans 1. God gives people over to their dishonorable passions. Now, if you look up the various translations, you'll see that uh, they're called vile passions, degrading passions, shameful lusts. But the important thing is to note, God didn't create the human race this way. But when fallen human beings reject the knowledge of God, God gives the human race over to these fallen passions, these desires, these lusts. What was existing within human nature, fallen human nature, then emerges. It was there in its latency, then it becomes evident in terms of the way it exposes itself in terms of these things taking place among human beings. Now, second part is what Paul says in verses 28 to 31. Paul gives us a list. There's at least 21 specific immoral acts or immoral conditions that characterize in a general fashion the evil that human beings do to one another. This is the evil that we find in fallen human nature. It's what fallen human nature looks like apart from the grace of God. So human beings, when they make nature ultimate, the consequences in terms of what it does to human nature itself is that these fallen inclinations become viewed as natural. They become viewed as the norm. They become viewed as natural in such, in such a sense that all taboos, all kinds of moral judgments about them begin to disappear. And that's especially in the realm of sexuality. The sexual inclinations that Paul names here, within a pagan understanding of the world, must be seen as simply normative parts of human life. But our biblical point of view see things differently. We see that the pagan point of view degrades to these kinds of practices. That people use people. People abuse people as means to their own ends and to their own selfish fulfillments. Uh, we see the principle of pleasure valued over any principles of true righteousness, true goodness, true holiness. We see that the commandment that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves is essentially canceled. And then the other consequence, the third truth that the Apostle Paul teaches here. Paganism, the worship of pagan gods, destroys the integrity of the family, the family and marriage. We see two things that Paul says that points in this direction. First is the male and female homosexuality that Paul describes in verses 26 to 27. This practice is a rejection of God's created design, the design he has given in Genesis 1 and 2, in which in Genesis 1, 27, 28, God creates the human race, we were told, we read, in his image, male and female with a specific command that God blesses with respect to humankind to be fruitful and to multiply, that is, to procreate. In the covenant of marriage that God describes in Genesis 2, where male and female become one 
flesh. Now, in the relationships of homosexuality, you cannot become one flesh in the biblical sense at all. You cannot be fruitful. Homosexual relationships cannot procreate. And therefore, homosexual relationships cannot procreate the next generation of human beings. And the procreation of the next generation of human beings is so deeply embedded within God's creation of marriage and family. It's stated there right from the beginning. And the LGBTQ approach drives an agenda that destroys the integrity of family as God designed it. Then Paul points to a second issue, that paganism as a fundamental rejection of the true God produces. In verse 30, Paul speaks about or mentions, quote, disobedient to parents as one of the characteristics of a fallen humanity. Now, that may seem like a small statement to us. We might think that Paul is referencing things like teenage rebellion, the generation gap and such, but it is far deeper. The Old Testament and New Testament pattern is that of parents raising up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But the word that's translated disobedient here is actually from the idea of, quote, not being persuaded. It's a word that's the opposite of faith, not being persuaded. It's the kind of disobedience here that is of the utmost concern in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that of being disobedient to the faith of one's parents. And again and again, we see in the Old Testament that this is the Old Testament arc of history, that the children of a faithful generation of Israelites grow up unpersuaded of the true faith, and they pursue the gods of Canaan. They fall away into pagan idolatry. And then looking back to the Old Testament, beyond what the Apostle Paul says here, but the Apostle Paul is really speaking with the background of the Old Testament mind, there's that third element of paganism's attack upon marriage and family, God's design for marriage and family. When we look at Leviticus 18, we've noted this a couple of times in this series. You have these pagan practices described there that the, that the, that the law of Moses says, God says, do not do these things. All the nations of Canaan do these things. And this is why uh, they are being removed. The point is that paganism always moves in the direction of maximal sexual freedom from taboos and it moves in the direction of a maximal devaluation of human life. So God warns in Leviticus 18 that incest, immoral sexual relations among family members, prevalent and a great abomination before the Lord. And God also warns that the abomination of child sacrifice, offering up babies and young children as burnt offerings by fire to the pagan gods, also prevalent. This practice of child sacrifice, as well as all human sacrifice, was systemic within paganism. Which points out that the stronger the pagan influence, the weaker becomes the value of all human life, especially the human life of the next 
generation. Then lastly, we can cite Greco-Roman paganism, and that which we find in the New Testament era and earlier, to see how paganism is subversive of marriage and family. We have all this extensive literary evidence of Greco-Roman paganism, more than we could ever hope to have out of the ancient Middle East. But scholars of paganism consistently point to the commonalities and the similarities and the parallels that we find and how all the pagan gods and goddesses behaved in their so-called marriages. So within the Greco-Roman world, let's look at the chief offender. Uh, for the Greek version, Zeus, Hera, the Roman version, Jupiter, Juno, the point is this. Zeus was unfaithful any number of times in his marriage to Hera. Very often with mortal women. And sometimes outright rape. And in most cases, Hera didn't blame Zeus, but blamed those Zeus was unfaithful with. She would take out her wrath on Zeus's poor human consort out of jealousy of them. Which is why Plato has Socrates complaining in the Republic that the epics of Homer give their readers a very bad moral example in terms of the lives of the gods and goddesses. He wanted Homer's epics to be greatly edited toward a higher moral code all of which to point out about paganism. These four points. It gives the argument of what Paul teaches here. The worship of pagan gods destroys the integrity of the family, the integrity of marriage, because people become like what they worship. Now, the point stands. When you look at it this way, when you see what Paul writes here, we could actually go to a number of other places within the New Testament. But here's what we understand. The New Testament, no differently than the Old Testament, sees pagan idolatry as the greatest crime against God. For these reasons, paganism and idolatry promotes a counterfeit worship. It stands against the first and second of the Ten Commandments. It's cosmic treason. And then its effect upon the human domain. Paganism leads to a moral breakdown to everything that is holy and good for human beings. Everything good within the human domain is undermined by paganism. And then, of course, specifically, paganism eliminates sexual taboos. It is subversive to the fabric of marriage and family, and women and children are the most victimized. So just like the Old Testament, the New Testament looks at pagan idolatry as the capital crime. It's the greatest of all crimes against God and against his image bearers. It exchanges the truth of God for a lie. It removes the moral fiber, the God-given boundaries that those who bear the image of God are supposed to have with one another. But there's more, one more point here. Paul says that pagans actually know that their sins are worthy of death. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve 
to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we might put Paul's point this way. In their heart of hearts, people know they're guilty before God, but they do not want to change their ways because they do not want to love God with all of their hearts and they do not want to love their neighbors as themselves. Now, I will finish this way. We need to connect this New Testament point of view, paganism, to two things. First, to the mission of Christ coming into the world, and then to the mission of the church. So let's put it this way. The mission of Christ has always been to rescue people of the lie and to redeem them for his kingdom, where all who are on the side of truth listen to him. Think about this passage. Jesus before Pilate recorded in John 18, 36 and 37, where Jesus says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. The pagan world has exchanged truth for a lie. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. All who are of the truth listen to his voice. As Jesus has said in John 10, 27 to 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And a few verses earlier, he had said, And I lay down my life for the sheep. The point of the cross is that Jesus came to save people from the lie and to bring them into the truth. But then secondly, the mission of the church. Remember what Timothy heard from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14, 16, Paul wrote these words, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nation, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Paul tells Timothy, so Paul is telling us, our mission as the household of God, our mission as the church, our mission as Christian believers is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth about Christ, who came to rescue and redeem people out of the domain of darkness, to translate them into his own kingdom in order to have eternal life. And that is why our series theme has consistently been this. 
even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and in this culture, the call to all believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And therefore, we need to remember how we are to live a life worthy of the Lord so that our lives and our reputations never tarnish the message we proclaim, that we would bear fruit in every good work, always focused upon abiding in Christ, Christ who is our solid rock. Amen. Our God and Father, help us to be like the men of Issachar, who were able to understand the times in which they lived. Help us to hear the words of the Apostle Paul spoke to the Ephesians, that we needed to, to redeem our time because the days are evil. Help us to listen to what the words of the writer to Hebrews said, that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, running the race with perseverance. Help us to understand that, like Paul said in the Colossians, uh, that we need to have our words seasoned with salt, with wisdom talking to those who are unbelievers. Remind us again and again, Father, of our purpose here in this world, to bear a faithful witness to Christ, who is the truth, who has brought us truth, who has rescued us from the lie that is paganism. This we would thank you for in his name. Amen.